This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, it's wonderful to see such an incredible audience. Um, and I thank the organizers, my colleagues in organizing this as well, um, uh, for making it possible to talk about such an exciting new area. Uh, my hope today is to introduce uh, some of the background problems and issues that you'll hear in the second half of the program today, mostly focused on brains, uh, because although we're interested also in all of the various features uh, that are associated with domestication, one of the things that, of course, interests us most uh, is you and I and how we behave. And so to some extent, uh, it's really the focus of brains that we're after. Unfortunately, brains are difficult to study, as I'm sure you all know. Uh, and we're beginning, just beginning to understand this. Although there has been uh, a considerable amount of time uh, devoted to this process of understanding uh, domestication and behavior, as you've heard. I want to begin by just sort of trying to broaden your thinking about domestication because it's going to be necessary as we move along. Uh, domestication, as we've been hearing about it, is mostly about what people have done to animals and plants. And typically that's been the way that we've understood domestication. Today we're beginning to broaden that conception, uh, trying to understand a more broad sense of what may, might be called a domestic phenotype. Uh, and I want to begin by just noticing that all we're talking really about here is uh, something that's about home, about being together, about being in a, quote, non-wild context. And here's just a couple of definitions that are out there. The process whereby a population of living organisms is changed at the genetic level through generations of selective breeding to accentuate traits that ultimately benefit the interests of humans. Uh, clearly, this is domestication as we normally understand it, or the process by which wild plants or animals become adapted to humans in the environment they provide. Again, a little bit more open, but focusing on what we've done to other creatures in the world. Or a species in which the evolutionary process has been modified in a way that makes it more suited to life in an artificial environment rather than in the wild. Uh, in other words, uh, maybe a slightly broader view uh, is to begin to think about uh, what it is for an organism to evolve such a way that it's adapted to either by virtue of action of some other organism or spontaneously itself to an unusual environment, an environment that may in fact uh, be atypical. Uh, and so the final issue is if there's something like incidental domestication and irrespective of human intervention. And it's precisely to this question that a lot of the rest of the presentations will be directed, uh, particularly about whether or not we, in a sense, exhibit features uh, that we see in other species that are domesticated. Um, let me go back to Darwin because this is an old idea. And Darwin in many ways is prescient here. He understood a lot of the things that we've been talking about today so far. Um, he in many ways was fairly open to a lot of variety of ways of thinking about domestication because he thought of domestication as something more than just taming behavior. Uh, that I think is pretty important. Taming is obviously crucial in this story. Um, he, nevertheless, was recognizing that we normally talk about it with respect to human purposes. 
And that one of the things that you see in these cases is increased variability. We've seen a lot of increased variability in physical traits, in behavioral traits, and so on. Uh, And with dogs, of course, this elaborate difference in body size and body shape that's possible with domestication. Uh, The other variation that's probably equally important, and for the rest of our discussion here, uh, probably of crucial importance, is the change in behavior. That is, it's not just that animals are more tame. For the most part, there's a lot more behavioral plasticity we see in domesticated species, uh, that they're more trainable, uh, more adaptive to a variety of contexts, uh, and so on, at least, at, uh, I should say, adaptive to what you might say artificial contexts. Uh, Darwin finally saw one thing that we've focused on today as well, and I'll talk a little bit more about, and that's that in most species, and by the way, this is not universally true, and it may be one of the interesting paradoxes about our own case, is the brain size of domesticated animals is generally smaller uh, compared to their body size, and, and absolutely in many cases, uh, than other nearby relatives. Uh, A number of other researchers over the years have also uh, begun to focus on the question as to whether humans are self-domesticated. It has many different um, ideological linkages as well. Sometimes self-domestication is a good thing in some eyes. It's a bad thing in other eyes. Uh, Darwin says, for example, man in many respects may be compared with those animals which have long been domesticated. We might therefore expect that civilized men, who in one sense are highly domesticated, will be more prolific than wild men. In fact, he was beginning to focus also on reproduction, that domestication is oftentimes about increasing rates of reproduction. Um, We find uh, a number of other uses of it uh, in the last century. I won't go through all of these. Um, But uh, Eugen Fischer, for example, uh, was very much interested in racial characteristics. Um, In fact, there was some influence of his work on the eugenics and later Nazi activity. looking at domestication as something that we might be able to use to divide people up and analyze folks um, in terms of, to some extent, who was more domesticated and who was less domesticated. Um, Conrad Lawrence himself was involved in these questions uh, and, in fact, uh, was very much interested in whether or not uh, you should think about domestication as a kind of degradation or just simply a kind of variation. Um, he liked to call it cosmolitanism, um, that is, living in cities, you know, living, um, again, in homes, perhaps. What I want to do today, just to sort of open things up, to broaden your thinking, is to recognize that there are lots of possible consequences. In fact, all of these consequences, I think, are relevant. First of all, um, there can be selective breeding to enhance a desired trait. And we've certainly heard about that in many cases today already. Um, There can also be incidental selection that favors a trait, not just hitchhiking effects, but simply by virtue of moving animals or plants into unusual environments. Um, Secondary things happen all the time. Um, There can be selective breeding to eliminate an undesired trait, and certainly with the the foxes, we've seen very good indication that you can selectively eliminate a trait. Um, There can also, of course, be incidental selection that eliminates traits, uh, in which we don't actually know what's going on. People haven't done it, but it simply occurs. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on the next one. In fact, it's the one I think that is least focused on, but for my 
uh, dollar for dollar is, is one that we need to also pay attention to, not that, it's, that any of these are mutually exclusive, and that's relaxation of selection, bringing animals out of a situation where they are under serious predation pressure in which foraging is a serious problem and competition with others for food and territory is a serious problem. Uh, this relaxes natural selection, not an increase of selection, but actually allowing things to drift and vary. Each of these may be relevant, and I think they're relevant to different aspects. Um, uh, one final approach, and I've, I like the list that came out of Jared Diamond's a work of some years ago, in which he said, in order to easily domesticate a species, I'm not sure this is the whole story, but it, they're useful features, um, they need to be somewhat flexible in their diet. They need to be able to sort of um, eat different things, not to eat the normal stuff uh, that they have for the course of a long period of their evolution. Um, He also felt that maturation rate was an important feature, in part because for human domestication, we want to be able to produce these animals as a resource as quickly and easy as possible. Therefore, there's going to be selection on some reproductive features, not just uh, behavioral features. Um, That includes the ability to breed them in captivity. In captivity, you're in an unusual environment where breeding itself may be a challenge, where animals may avoid interacting with each other sexually uh, in part simply because it's the wrong environment. Uh, uh, Non-aggressivity is an important feature, in part because it makes animals easier to handle. If animals, as we saw with the foxes, um, are constantly aggressive or frightened of people, um, then in effect, uh, it's, it's very hard to have them in association with you. And then finally, the opposite side of this, a high threshold for panic. Um, we saw that the foxes also show this incredible uh, tendency to kind of panic with respect to uh, a threat of some kind. Well, obviously, if you're an animal that also is under predation, uh, you need to be constantly alert. The question I want to ask about all of these is that in each of these, you can see all of these possibilities of selection and relaxation as a possibility. It's what makes the problem of domestication both interesting and complicated, in which one idea will probably not explain the whole story. Um, Let me focus on brains for the rest of the time because, in effect, um, not only is that my interest, uh, but it's also something that many of the subsequent speakers will be talking about. And Darwin's original claim that domestic species have, on average, smaller brains uh, than you find uh, in uh, their wild counterparts has been borne out again and again and again. There are very few exceptions to this. Interestingly enough, um, when we look more closely at the brain, it's not evenly distributed over all the parts. Uh, It's, in fact, quite different in different species, but I'll talk about just a few of the commonalities. Um, One of them is that forebrain seems to be reduced to some extent compared to the rest of the brain. Uh, That includes a variety of structures. Here, um, I just talk about the cortex with respect to the rest of the brain, Uh, but there are many other structures as well. Um, The upper parts of the brain, we call them the dorsal forebrain, uh, seem to be particularly reduced and affected in this process. Uh, This diagram, in fact, uh, shows that the, the dotted line is what you would expect uh, if, uh, in fact, we were the same uh, in each of these creatures, the lab rat, the wild rat, gerbils, wild domesticated sheep, uh, boars and pigs and so on. 
the dotted line is what you'd expect if there wasn't much of a change. The upper line basically says that brain size uh, in these species, in the domestics, uh, cortical size is smaller than you'd expect for the absolute brain size. Uh, that in effect there's parts of the brain that are being selectively affected. Uh, this is a list. I don't expect you to jump through this. I'm going to just sort of focus on a couple of things and follow it up very quickly. Uh, this is a list uh, by a man who's spent much of his career trying to divide up different parts of the brain and identify which have been reduced, which have been expanded, which have stayed the same uh, during domestication processes. And the numbers you see here, I'm not going to go through any of these in any great detail. Um, it's a negative number in almost all cases. And that's because this is the percent reduction on average, from an animal whose brain size, uh, corrected for brain size, by the way, but percent reduction with respect to what you'd expect in terms of the size of various structures. Uh, I'm going to focus a little bit on the top one and the bottom two, olfactory structures, smell structures, uh, the olfactory bulbs, for example, that we use for smell. Um, and you can see that 25%, 31%, 22%, 33% reduction, really a significant reduction across the board. We find this almost universal. And by by the way, uh, as you see, it's also true for domestic dogs. We think of domestic dogs as having great senses of smell, but in fact, they're also subject to significant olfactory reduction, which is quite a surprise. So of these structures, what's interesting about them is that they're often involved in the production of automatic behaviors of various kinds, uh, particularly aggressive behaviors and social and sexual behaviors. Uh, olfaction, for example, smell for mammals is a crucial uh, part of the process of identifying uh, friends, foes, breeding partners, uh, offspring, and, and parents, and so forth. Um, so to have these structures significantly reduced is an interesting problem. Uh, most people now believe that, in fact, that reduction has to do with the fact that during domestication, um, what we human beings, domesticating animals, so to speak, don't want is we don't want the animals to make these decisions themselves, uh, to get in the way of our own decisions. And so, in fact, selectively selecting against the capacity to do good olfactory discrimination could actually be an advantage for controlling breeding. What that means effectively um, is that it will also probably change the way that aggressive behavior is engaged in simply by virtue of decreasing the capacity to distinguish friends and foes, um, uh, females that are in heat or not in heat, so on and so forth. Doesn't mean it can't be done, but in effect, you might say the automatic effects are going to be reduced. Uh, and, in fact, what we expect to find under those circumstances uh, is that these are going to be animals easier to control and manipulate uh, domesticatively. Um, the point I want to make about this, however, and this is why selection can be quite rapid, not the kind of thing we see in evolution over millions of years, for example. Uh, why? Because to damage a structure doesn't necessarily take a lot of effort, so to speak. And I don't mean actively damaging it. I simply mean selecting for animals that do a poorer job of discriminating this way in one way or another. That can happen automatically. And as a result, mutations can accumulate spontaneously. Um, so one, in selecting against something, uh, actively or passively, uh, it allows errors to accumulate more rapidly. You don't have to necessarily select um, for something to be eliminated as simply uh, to not select against uh, their elimination because noise will step in anyway. 
Interestingly enough, um, it's not just the olfactory structures, as I mentioned, that are reduced. Uh, This is a summary of just one study of many, many, um, looking at different cortical areas. Uh, The percentages here on the right are, again, reduction with respect to uh, the wild variant. And you can see that in the front part of the brain, the red and orange areas, motor areas, are reduced. In fact, they're most reduced in the domestic mink. Um, uh, On the other hand, visual areas are slightly reduced. Uh, We find this varies a lot across species, whether it's the visual system that's been degraded or the motor system that's been degraded. Probably the most significant and drastic one associated with you and I um, is olfaction. Um, we now know that human beings um, have the most reduced of land mammals, the most reduced olfactory genes. Um, by olfactory genes, it turns out that smell is a very complex process genetically. It takes, on average, for typical mammals, somewhere in the range of 1,500 distinct genes for olfactory receptors. Not that they don't just necessarily... Re- sense a particular odor, their combinatorial activity is what probably does that. But nevertheless, as you decrease the variety of olfactory genes, um, obviously the selectivity of smell goes way, way down. Uh, And you'll see from this figure here uh, that, in fact, uh, humans uh, have a significant reduction. We've lost about half of them. They've become pseudogenes. In fact, this includes all of the genes that are involved in what's been called the accessory olfactory tract, uh, which is a tract that's critical for, um, for smelling, so to speak, pheromones. Uh, This is not something that only we've been involved in. You can see that old world monkeys and apes have also had some reduction. Finally, what I want to jump to here is the fact that Damage can occur in lots of ways, and variety can occur in lots of ways. And one of the recent studies that's come out just very recently about a species that has been actively selected by human beings is looking at rabbits. Rabbits, of course, raised for a whole variety of reasons, including food, but also just cuteness or interesting shape and so on. Turns out that rabbit domestication has been associated with a wide variety of gene changes. Um, that's quite varied across the entire range. Lots of pseudogenicity, lots of other changes. Interestingly enough, something that's characteristic of rabbits and ourselves um, uh, is that a lot of the changes, particularly the changes that you might say are damaging or are loss of function effects, uh, involve genes that actually regulate other genes. And regulating processes may in fact change development in a variety of ways, including development uh, of the brain. Let me just end by jumping way back to the precursors of Homo, uh, the Australopithecines. Um, there's many ways in which they have a lot of traits that we would expect to have been domesticated away. Um, uh, males uh, had massive faces, highly prognathic faces. Uh, they had brains about the size of, t- of today's apes. Um, Although they had reduced canines, it was probably for dietary issues, they had remarkably high sexual dimorphism in which males were very large compared to females, suggesting that social behavior uh, in the Australopithecines was very much a polygynous behavior in which males were physically competing for females. That disappears almost to modern levels within um, uh, just about a half million years from the discovery of stone tools. Uh, One of the possibilities is that 
the very process of domestication has gone on multiple times in multiple ways. And probably the beginning of it has to do with changing our ecology so that we were now able to survive on a very different food source uh, that changed our social behavior in a whole variety of ways, including brains that have enlarged, faces that have reduced, um, and sexual dimorphism that has also reduced. That has continued on into the present. There have probably been many waves using many different mechanisms to accomplish this end. Thanks. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to speak here about uh, our work. Okay, so you've seen already this image. Uh, it's a very introductory lecture when you see the baby chimpanzee and the adult chimpanzee, and when you heard already from the previous talks, one clear difference is the uh, facial features of the baby chimpanzee much more resemble our human features than uh, if you look at the adult. Basically, baby chimpanzee looks much more human-like and more cute. And it's also, of course, reflected in the uh, brain features and the cranial, no, in the cranial features, sorry, not in the brain features, when you basically can say what the skull of the human, adult human, resembles the skull of the baby chimpanzee when the adult chimpanzee is completely different. Uh, but what is interesting for us, not really how it is in terms of the skull, but the content of the skull in terms of brain. We're interested, are human brains childlike? Or in the other words, if we say, if we look at the human brain of adult human, is it in any way similar to the brain of the baby chimpanzee? But how can we, basically, how can we address this issue? Can we look into the brain and see if any of the features of the brain, of our adult human brain, resemble baby chimpanzee brain? Yes, we can. In fact, uh, molecular biology gives us many tools to look inside the brain. One of the easiest way to look at what's happening in the brain is look at the expression of the gene, gene activity, also called gene expression, because we know brain as any other human organ consists of cells which have a human DNA, but DNA is the same in all tissues. Our liver, our kidney, our brain all have the same DNA. What is important, what parts of DNA is which genes are activated and transcribed and make RNA, which in terms will make proteins. So basically, we can look at the activity of the genes in particular brain regions, in particular cells, in particular um, stages of development, and see if the human brain expression somehow special or similar to expression of the baby chimps. If we do this, if we simply take a piece of brain from different brains of different age, we can look at the particular brain area here, its prefrontal cortex, the brain area which is involved in uh, basically cognitive control of many things what we do, we see what actually uh, gene activity in the brain is incredibly dynamic. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't stand in one place. So what you see here is the groups of genes, about basically thousands of genes on the human brain, all change their activity with age. Here you have age, and it's different groups of genes, and here you have age from newborn to about 100 years, and you can see, for instance, for this group of genes, the activity, which is on y-axis, goes up over age. So when you or me were born, activity of the genes was very low, 
and then it's increasing, increasing, increasing until the very old age, until we are 100 years old. For these genes, for instance, it's opposite pattern, the activity decreases with life. Here we see genes which were kind of low active in the newborn babies, and when we were young, children, maybe teenagers, it was very high, and then it's decreasing with age. You cannot maybe see the uh, ages, but this would be about 10, 15 years of age, and then it decreases. If you're 40, you're somewhere here. If you're 80, somewhere here. But what does it all mean? Um, we see a lot of different functions, of course, uh, changing their activity. But what is it more interesting for us, what we can do to simplify this question, is simply looking at the changes which are specific to humans. So we can compare the patterns of gene activity in the human brain to patterns of gene activity in the chimpanzee brain and macaque brain during the development and find what is special to human. You can say, why do we need to look at the macaques? Because basically we said we only need to find out if the adult human brain is similar to the baby chimpanzee brain. But imagine a situation when we see what human is, adult human is indeed similar to baby chimpanzee brain, but also adult macaque, for some reason, is also similar to the baby chimpanzee. Then it would mean what human and macaque brain actually shows the same type of uh, neoteny. It would be much more hard, much harder to interpret than if we see this picture specific to human and macaque doesn't show any such trait. So we really want to focus on this very short evolutionary lineage of about maybe six to eight million years when humans, our ancestors, separated from the common ancestors, the humans and chimpanzees. And of course, because it's uh, such a short evolutionary time, we can expect that there will be very few molecular changes, developmental changes. So it would be easier for us to study them. So how this kind of study is done is very simple. Uh, we collect tissue from brains, from prefrontal cortex, cerebellum from uh, humans, chimpanzees, and macaques for different age. And we can measure gene expression using molecular biology methods. And then we can see how many genes are there show with human-specific or chimpanzee-specific or macaque-specific patterns. And what we see, what actually in prefrontal cortex, but not in cerebellum, which is involved more in motor coordination, there's really a large number of this kind of human-specific developmental changes. Around 700 genes show this kind of pattern. In cerebellum, it's less. And in chimpanzee, you basically find very few, which is reasonable because in six to eight million years, you hardly expect any kind of developmental change. But in human, you do find it. So basically, now we can see what kind of genes are affected and what do those genes do. Uh, we can take all the 700 genes and cluster them in different clusters using just similarity of gene expression. It's not very important. It's just some kind of methodological method, a methodological way to deal with all this data. And then what we get is this kind of gene groups, all sharing similar expression patterns. For instance, this is human developmental curve. You can see genes follow this kind of trajectory. And chimpanzee and macaques here in blue and green show completely different developmental trajectories. So you can see this is a clear human-specific patterns. And then we can ask what kind of functions they do. It's a big table. Again, you don't need to read it. Most important what here immediately already for the very first group, for this group of genes, we see the functions related to the uh, long-term potentiation, signal transduction, cell communication, calcium signaling. 
basically all these functions relate to how neurons in our brains communicate with each other. So our brains is basically consists of trillions of this kind of brain cells, neurons. But what is important is not really the neurons themselves, but how they connect, how they communicate with each other. You can imagine brain is some kind of, well, governmental building, and every neuron is uh, maybe as an employee, as some kind of clerk sitting in the office. But if they cannot communicate with each other, if they cannot call or email or send messages or simply fax a document to each other, you know, nothing will happen. You, you, they, you give them documents, it has to go from one office to another. And similar things happen in our brain. So our neurons in our brain, they all have to communicate through the uh, little things here, the synopsis, which are sitting like some little leaves on the branches. And this is the way how we can use our brain and how thoughts and memories and other things are formed. That's what at least people uh, currently think. And if you look at this pattern, it doesn't really look as a neotenic pattern because you have very different curve in the human brain. This is human expression. This is age. Uh, each dot represents an individual, which we measured gene activity. And this is uh, sum of uh, about 200 genes, which we call the module one genes because they all have the same gene expression pattern. And this is the expression patterns of chimpanzee in blue and macaque. Seems completely different, so can we really call it neotenic? But if we measure the macaque samples from newborns and from the fetal stages, then we see what actually before birth, the macaque activity of genes resembled the activity of genes which happened in the baby human brain after birth during the first five years of life. So this is fetal samples, this is already after, after birth. So actually you can see the macaque curve and human curve are very similar. They just shifted in terms of time. And probably chimpanzee curve is also very similar, but we, of course, cannot get any fetal chimpanzee samples for our study. So if we're talking about the change of timing, it's basically what we call neoteny. Neoteny is uh, uh, some features of the juvenile, juvenile uh, chimpanzees and macaques present in adult humans. But is it really true? Can we really call it uh, neotenic? Uh, here, based on this expression curves, we have an advantage. We don't need to guess what kind of age of human corresponds to what kind of age of chimpanzee. Because, for instance, if you have a dog, you know, if you have a three-year-old dog, you say, how old is your dog? And then you have to maybe multiply by seven and say, oh, it's something like 21 years old. But here you can simply look at the expression curves of the chimpanzee and human, align them, and then based on gene expression, you can know what kind of age of human corresponds to what kind of, what, what age in chimpanzee based on expression of genes. And if we take all genes, which is signified by this blue curve, and this is chimpanzee age in years after conception, and this is birth time, chimpanzee, human, macaque, and this is human age in years. And you can see, if you look at the old genes, when chimpanzee is born, so we can look at this blue curve and see the human age would be about one and a half years. But for the red curve, which is module one genes, which genes which control the synaptic connections, the connections between neurons, you can see it would be much higher age. It would be somewhere here, around five years of age. And then we can go through this curve and see one-year-old chimpanzee for all genes, it corresponds to two-year-old human, but for module one genes, it's already 10 years old. And uh, for the uh, chimpanzee age uh, two, for all genes, it corresponds to 
three and a half, but for the model one, it's already 15 years, uh, and so on. And you can see, basically, then, um, even if you're eight years old, for the model one, it's uh, for all genes, it's just 30-year-old human, and for the uh, chimpanzee age 20. So in reality, all genes just represent the shift between the human development and chimpanzee development because we know the sexual maturation is uh, slow, um, later happening, so basically around this age in chimpanzee you have sexual maturity around 10. Uh, in uh, human it's around 16, so basically it fits to what we expect, but model one is much shifted. So it shifted towards, seems like, old age, but what it means, what actually in the 80-year-old expression is just corresponds to 30-year-old human or 20-year-old chimpanzee. So it is basically not any case when you're 80-year-old, um, you have an expression corresponding to, for this particular gene, it's just a 30-year-old human. Uh, so what I said, is related to gene expression, but what I said was gene expression is supposed to control the synaptic connections. And uh, we can look directly at synaptic connections using the uh, electron microscopy. So this is what we see. If we look at the electron microscope, this is the scheme of how synaptic connections look. And basically, you see this kind of dark patches, which corresponds to the membrane. And we can see if this kind of uh, human-specific shift, the delay, the atenic delay also can be seen in the level of synaptic connections, so directly on the level of the phenotype of the brain. Uh, it's done very simply. One does this electron microscopy picture and just counts how many membranes are there. And this uh, work was done before in human and macaques, so people knew what there is difference between humans and macaques. In humans and macaques, uh, when we are born, there are very few mature synaptic connections. But in humans, the peak of synaptic density is achieved much later, around 5 to 10 years of age. And in macaques, it's within the few half a year of life. So you can see humans have much longer window to form the connections in the brain compared to the macaques. In macaques, already after half a year, the brain is basically fixed. All the connections are made, and synaptic pruning starts to take place. Uh, we repeated this experiment in our lab. Basically, we got very similar curve for macaques, a little bit more ugly curve for humans, but uh, still different from macaque curve. But nobody looked at the chimpanzee, so according to our hypothesis, this process should be specific to human, and chimpanzee should look very much like macaques. And indeed, this is the case. So when we add the chimpanzee samples, we see chimpanzee curve, although based on few individuals, it looks like uh, macaque curve is a green curve and very different from the human curve. So this uh, neotenic process is not only seen on the gene expression level, but it also affects how the synapses are formed in the brain. So we can summarize it in this kind of uh, picture. Basically, say this is a, a synaptic gene expression where we see this neotenic shift. And when I was saying eight-year-old humans correspond to 20-year-old chimpanzee, you can see it just simply because uh, you can project it here. And uh, it means what uh, uh, when we're old in uh, our brain activity is still young for this process. And this is not only gene expression, it's also in synopsis, or also we only measure it in the young individuals. We don't have any old individuals here. But how we can test the functional significance of this? Basically, 
if it would be in a model organism in a mouse, then we would say we simply need to disrupt this process and see what are the consequences. Uh, you kill this process in the mouse using some kind of knockdown or some other ways and see what happens to the mouse brain. Can it, uh, what kind of function it lose or gain if you enhance this function. But in human, of course, we cannot do such experiment. But in humans, we have uh, loss of functions happen naturally. We call it diseases. So we can call, look at disease which cause loss of function uh, for human cognitive ability, especially for uh, maybe social abilities, and see if it leads to disruption of synaptic neoteny. And there is such disease. It's autism. So if we talk about autism, then one of the effects of autism is really disruption of social cognition. So social cognition fails to develop in autistic patients. And our hypothesis is what in autism this kind of neotenic shift in synaptogenesis will be disrupted. And this is data what I showed you before. And this is what you see if you add, basically repeat the experiment, but also add human autism cases. And you can see, indeed, the autistic curve here in black is dramatically different from the healthy human developmental curve. It basically falls back into this ancestral pattern of development. And the same you see for synaptic connections, although you cannot measure it at the early ages because you can only diagnose it from two years of age. But basically, you can see what dramatic disruption of the, this neotenic pattern. And this is all I have. So for the summary take-home messages, there is no whole brain neoteny. So neotenic changes are restricted to specific processes in specific brain regions. So as I said, if we look at all genes expressed in brain, then uh, we don't see any neotenic shift. But for particular processes, such as expression genes controlling synaptic, synaptic development, we indeed see neotenic shift. And disruption of neotenic development may lead to loss of social cognition, which we saw in the case of autism. That's all. Thank you very much. Well, good afternoon. What a uh, pleasure it is to be here in San Diego in this wonderful symposium, very nicely organized, very fascinating. I want to tell you a little story, which is a, a kind of mystery. I, I've been thinking of it as a mystery in three parts, um, starting with Darwin, starting in England, moving to Siberia, which we've already heard a bit about, and then ending up in the present. Um, and I, we're kind of playing the role of Sherlock Holmes here, but another way of thinking about this is more like a medical doctor who sees a suite of symptoms and tries to figure out what is the underlying cause that pulls all this stuff together. And the, the mystery, you've already heard something about it, it's a mystery that goes back to Darwin, and in particular, this fantastic, gigantic, encyclopedic uh, variation of uh, animals and plants under domestication, giant two-volume two, two set, two big Bibles, and Darwin was an amazing collector of kind of everything that was known at his time about domesticated plants and animals. And he noticed, particularly with mammals, but also with some of the other domesticated uh, birds, for example, and even fish we know today, that there's a, 
a common suite of changes that keep popping up in all of these, these independently domesticated species. So it doesn't matter whether we're talking about rats or guinea pigs or horses or goats or sheep or pigs or cats or dogs, we keep seeing the same funny things popping up. So that, and just to go through them very quickly, the most striking one, and this is something that's so obvious when you look at these animals, but if you think about it, you realize this is really weird. All of these different domesticated species show bizarre coloration. So this is one of the most striking forms, this black and white coloration. Quite rare in nature. Typically when you see it, it's in things like skunks that... Uh, it's a warning coloration, but in domesticated species, we find breeds that show this funny coloration all over the place. Another one that's very unusual is droopy ears, floppy ears like that. Now, not all breeds show this, of course, but, but many dogs, I'm, I'm sure everyone's familiar with the uh, dog breeds, and, and rabbits are another strong case. And of course, the wild-type ancestors from which these species were domesticated always have erect ears. And in fact, Darwin noted that the only species that have floppy ears in nature are elephants. So again, weird thing, why does it keep popping up in all these domesticated species? Another one, which again we've heard something about, is the, the shortening of the snout, and this actually goes along with smaller teeth as well. Um, again, this is something that's typical of domesticated species. It's not always as obvious as in cases like these uh, flat-faced cats and dogs, but it is, from a statistical point of view, another thing that domesticated species have in common when compared to their wild-type cousins. I love this. Uh, this is a wild cat from Scotland, and he, he looks very angry about what happened to this little cat. <laughs> so, as we've already heard, another thing that happens is changes in brain size. So why is it that domesticated species tend to have quite a bit, uh, brains that are quite a bit smaller than their wild-type cousins? Now, this is variable. So the, the number that I think is most striking is this 35% for, for domesticated pigs relative to wild boars. But in dogs or cats, it's something like 25 to 30%. And there's only a few species where we don't see it. And uh, an example are mice, domesticated mice, but also the domesticated foxes that we've already heard something about show a very small, uh, it's questionable whether it's a significant difference in brain size. But again, a general thing in all of these independently domesticated species. And of course, last but not least, the thing that really all domesticated species have in common is their tameness. They tend to be unafraid of humans, often even quite affectionate of humans. I particularly love this picture in the Alps. Imagine going up to a wild bison on a mountaintop and just going and petting it. You would never, you would never think of this, but we can do this with domesticated animals. So in all these cases, we've seen a suite of changes, and Darwin was aware of all of them. We now know of some other stuff that Darwin didn't know, but that these, these uh, changes that I've told you about form the core of something that we've dubbed the domestication syndrome. Um, so this is the sort of medical term. I, the term is not meant to suggest that this is a disease or something that's a terrible thing that's happened to domesticated species, only that all of these traits seem to come together. They seem to work as a package for reasons that we don't fully, fully understand. And this is a term that my co-authors uh, on the paper that's cited right here, Richard Rangham, who's here in the audience, and Adam Wilkins, who wasn't able to attend. We just published this paper, and that's where we introduced this term. Um, trying to make sense of this suite of changes, this domestication syndrome. So why? Why should this happen? That's the mystery, and it's an, a very old one. If you figure that, that Mendel's theory of genetics only happened uh, right around the same time as Darwin's domestication of species, we might even say it's the oldest problem in genetics. 
So why, what, what would cause this strange, seri- this strange uh, set of things to keep happening over and over again? So there are some hypotheses that have been out there for a while. For example, the piebald coloration. Well, we can explain that, that you, if you're a farmer and you've lost your sheep or your goat or your horse, it might be easier to find them if they're black and white. So maybe people specifically selected for that. Okay, that's plausible for pigmentation. It doesn't help us explain all the other uh, sweets. For brains, I think it's a little bit easier. As we've already heard, it might be better to basically have your domesticated animals not be so clever, not be good at escaping, not making their own decisions about when to breed or what to eat, etc. So that, again, I think is a reasonably plausible explanation, but only for brain size, not for these other uh, features. Um, the only thing that I think is pretty obviously uh, makes sense from a, from a functional point of view is that animals would, uh, that humans, given a choice between an animal like this friendly Labrador of the sort that we just, we look at it and we think he's a nice dog versus a, uh, another dog like this, um, it's pretty clear what early humans, whether consciously or unconsciously, would probably prefer this to that. So I think the, the selection for tameness is something that we can take for granted, and that's what Darwin observed was, was almost certainly the unifying selective force, that, whether conscious or unconscious, that applied to all of these different domesticated species. Okay? So I think we don't have... None of these gives a full explanation for the whole suite of changes. So that's the mystery. And again, starting in England in, in Charles Darwin's time. And now let's fast forward to the late 1950s when Dmitry Belayev, whose story we've already heard a bit about, a geneticist who, who accepted Mendelian principles in the time of Lysenko, who didn't accept uh, Mendelian principles, was in quite a bit of danger. So I think Belayev actually got out pretty... He was lucky to be sent to Siberia, where he was able to create this new institute in, in Novosibirsk, um, I actually went there. This is me up there. And it's not as bad as it sounds. Novosibirsk is actually really nice in the summer. It's very warm. There's a beautiful lake there. So I agree. It, it's, it's being sent to Siberia doesn't seem like it was such a terrible thing. And of course, what it enabled Belayev to do was an, an audacious experiment. Think about how crazy this might have seemed. I'm going to create a new domesticated species from scratch. I'm with, sele- with specific selection. I'm going to make a new domesticated species. So I'm sure people at the time must have shaken their heads and said, well, this is impossible. There's no way. It takes thousands of years to accomplish this kind of thing. But as you've already heard, it didn't take very long. After about eight generations, there was already clear progress in um, creating tamer, less aggressive uh, uh, foxes. And after 20 generations, they had these beautiful, the, what, what uh, Professor Kukekova showed us, these beautifully friendly, beautifully tamed foxes that appeared. And the critical thing about this experiment, of course, is they, they were very careful to only select for tameness. They, this, unlike the, what, the, whatever happened in the mists of time when dogs were domesticated or when horses were domesticated or, or pigs, this is a case where we know what the scientists were doing. They were specifically and solely selecting for tameness. Okay, and there's, there's Belayev with his foxes. And of course, if we, as we've already heard, by selecting for tameness, just by choosing the ones who were least nasty, they got an, a, a, a suite of other changes, like white spotting, like floppy ears, like curly tails, very parallel to those that we see in all of these other domesticated species. 
So what the, this is one of the reasons that I think the Belayev experiment, the, the Novosibirsk experiment, is so important, because it shows us that specific selection on one thing can indeed lead to these other things as an unselected byproduct. And that, I think, um, really illustrates the power of modern science, at least if you have 50 years to do it, to get at questions that would otherwise be unanswerable. And one of the, the lesser-known facts about the Novosibirsk project is that they've also been domesticated, uh, domesticating minks, and they've very successfully domesticated rats and seen the same suite of changes. So in both of these cases, you start to see changes in pigmentation and, and uh, morphology along with the tameness that's being directly selected for Okay? So what we can conclude from the Belayev experiment is that selection for tameness alone is enough to lead to most of the other traits that we see in this domestication syndrome. And the question then is why? What's, what's behind this um, thing? So the answer, now we get to part three of my talk. The idea that my colleagues and I have proposed is that the common denominator for all of these different traits that I've been talking about, pigmentation, changes in teeth, changes in snout, changes in ears, changes in tameness, all come from a common embryological origin in a set of tissues called the neural crest. And since the neural crest aren't, these aren't necessarily the best known uh, bits of tissue for people who aren't biologists, what the neural crests are, are uh, it's a transitory set of cells that happens very early in our development. So when we're really, before we even have a brain, when we're little embryos, the, bat, the, the, the neural tube forms by a coming together of the dorsal part of the embryo, and then it invaginates to form a tube. So that, that happens up here. And then right at the tip of that, these, this, at the tip of this tube, we have a crest, a temporary crest. And those cells basically break away and they go on to infiltrate the rest of the body. So these become migratory and spread throughout the body. They go all over the place. Um, just to give you some illustrations, this is a diagram to give you some sense of the different routes that they can take to go down um, to form muscles, to form cartilage, to form pigmentation cells, etc., etc. And this is a stream of neural crest cells, of three particular types of neural crest cells in an actual embryo. And you can see them streaming away from this dorsal portion of the embryo to go out into the, and, and find their way into the, to the rest of the body of the developing animal. So all of us have lots of tissues that were originated from this particular population of embryonic precursors. So what's this have to do with our problem, with our mystery? Well, all of these traits that I've told you about have their origin in neural crest tissue. So for example, the cells that form the teeth are called odontoblasts. They come from the neural crest. The cells that form all of the bones and cartilage of the snout come from the neural crest. All of the um, black and white coloration, so the melanocytes, come from the neural crest. And crucially, the adrenal glands and the sympathetic nervous system, which are responsible for the fear, fearful and sometimes aggressive responses that, that an organism needs to mount, they also have their origins in the neural crest. So the adrenal glands, sympathetic ganglia, pigmentation cells, tooth cells, the uh, cartilage, uh, uh, bone and muscles, uh, bone and cartilage of the snout, and the ear cartilages all come from the same basic uh, precursor population. So the hypothesis that my colleagues and I have introduced is, that, is the specific idea that selecting for tameness changes the neural crest, and all of these other changes that we've seen, that we've been talking about, black and white coloration, et cetera, are simply unselected byproducts of the selection on this fearful or uh, tame response. Okay? So how would this work? 
Well, as you've already heard, there's a period of development in which young, dog, young animals, such this would be true for any species, when exposed to human input, can react fearfully and learn, oh, humans are scary, or they can react unfearfully, and then if they do that and the humans are nice to them, they learn that humans aren't dangerous. And we know that that period, that socialization window, is opened wider in dogs than in wolves, and how does that work? Well, it looks like that's a reduction of the adrenal glands and the sympathetic nervous system. So both of these components of the nervous system are delayed in their maturation. So if they, if they delay later, that gives more time for dogs or, or cats or pigs or sheep to be socialized to humans, and then they're what we call tame. Now, the lesser-known fact about dogs is if you don't socialize them, if you don't expose them to human contact within their first year of life, they will be wild for the rest of their lives. So you can't take a dog that's one year old and has never seen humans and ever turn it into a tame dog. So this window of socialization is a real thing, but again, it's a transitory thing. So what we're talking about is a change in the developmental timing of the fear response rather than some sort of blanket change that, that say, domesticated animals aren't or can't be afraid. Okay? And the idea of this is, of course, that because the neural crest forms this fear response, forms this uh, physio the, the physiological capability to feel fear, once you reduce that, you're going to reduce the other things that neural crests produce as well. Teeth, bones, ears, pigmentation. Completely unselected. Or they may be selected later on. They may be selected for, for other reasons later on. But in the early stages, they wouldn't need to be. Okay, so this is a diagrammatic representation of this. Um, there is a term in the medical literature called neurochristopathy. That, that refers to a specific damage or... or um, deleterious mutation in the neural crest. So we've used that term. It, again, it sounds a bit too much like disease for my taste, but we could think of this as being a kind of mild Christopathy, a mild uh, delaying or disruption of the neural crest migratory pattern. Um, and what that, the, the, the reason that's happening is specifically for these adrenal and sympathetic responses, for, for the ability to mount a fight and flight response. By delaying the neural crest, you delay that, opening this socialization window. That's what humans selected for. That's what we were specifically going after. That hence the, the, the solid line. All of the rest of this stuff, which also comes from neural crest, is a correlated byproduct of that. It's, it's not selected for, but it just happens because we've delayed this. And the one part that we're not entirely sure about is the forebrain size. So what, what, I, what this diagram tries to do is show specifically what the neural crest leads to, and it's all of the domestication syndrome except for brain size. And the, the key idea is that only this was specifically selected by humans, and these aspects are unselected byproducts. So that's where we stand. Um, I don't think the mystery is solved entirely. As I said, the brain size reduction are the most difficult to account for. So no part of the brain is formed from neural crest. There are interactions between uh, neural crest cells and the forebrain that, that are suggestive of the idea that the neural crest might have a, a strong influence on the brain, but there's, they aren't specific precursors of the brain. And of course, the real question, the question that we all want to know the answer to, are what exactly are the specific genes that are involved in this? So it's one thing to say these are genes that are involved in neural crest development. It's another thing to start getting the, the, the specific genes and listing them. Now, the problem, or it's a good thing or a bad thing, 
The, there are hundreds of genes that are involved in neural crest delay. We certainly don't think that it's one single gene. All the evidence points against the idea that there's a single gene that influences, that will control the neural crest or control domestication. So what it looks like is that in the normal population of the ancestral wolves, the ancestral rabbits, the ancestral pigs or whatever, there was a lot of free variation, minor alleles of small effect, and these could react very quickly to selection on, on tameness. So what what we expect now is a suite of genes, all of which are involved in NeuroCrest, but not one specific gene or even two or three specific genes that are going to be shared by all these domesticated species. So what we have here is a unified developmental mechanism, but not a single or, or a small number of genes per se. So we expect, in the end, if this, is, if this hypothesis is correct, we expect there to be many, um, not one or two genes to be involved. So I hope to show up here five years from now and we can give a, a much more detailed analysis of this. But for now, I'll thank you for your attention. I want to specifically thank my co-authors, Adam Wilkins and Richard Rangham, and my ERC grant, Samaka, for supporting this research. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.